America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And there is breaking news uh, about the six-year-old who was accused of shooting his teacher in uh, Virginia, Newport News, Virginia, this month. Uh, the New York Times is reporting that the school and his teacher uh, were warned uh, three times that the student had a gun with a child seeing it at recess. Uh, that's what a lawyer for the teacher said. Uh, and nothing was done about it before the teacher was shot and seriously wounded. The, she is, thank God, uh, going to be better. I think everyone has heard already about the uh, decision by the United States and uh, Germany, our ally in NATO, to send tanks, uh, both German tanks and American Abrams tanks, which are more complicated to use apparently, uh, headed toward Ukraine. And uh, Russia uh, has responded, quote, rationally. The Russian embassy in Berlin was among the first out of the gate after the news broke, offering a bizarre, if not uh, deranged, take. Uh, the uh, Berlin's decision signifies the unequivocal refusal of the Federal Republic of Germany to recognize historical responsibility to our people for the terrible, timeless crimes of Nazism. So said Russian Ambassador Sergei Necheyev in a statement. The statement went on to say that the tanks would also put an end to post-war reconciliation between Russians and Germans and take the conflict to a new level of confrontation. Now, given the fact that there were very uh, modestly estimated at least 20 million Russians who died fighting Germans in uh, World War II, which, yes, it's a long time ago, but it's within uh, the memory of living people who are veterans of that conflict. Uh, the idea that uh, this uh, desire to help Ukraine defend its own territorial integrity from a Russian invasion, the difficulty about what happened between Russia and Germany is the Nazis were very clearly the invaders. Uh, they had a non-aggression pact, a uh, pact of cooperation and friendship that uh, was the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov uh, pact that was signed in 1939, right before uh, the Nazis felt secure enough to begin the war by invading Poland from the west at the same time Russia was invading Poland from the east. In any event, uh, this is uh, a very serious the uh, it would end the post-war reconciliation between Russians and Germans and take the conflict to a new level of confrontation. Kremlin mouthpiece uh, Margarita Simonian, the editor-in-chief of the television network RT, joined Russian diplomats in offering up far-fetched Nazi comparisons. Quote, after a flogging by Washington, uh, Germany will send 14 tanks to Ukraine. 
uh, closer to summer. Deliveries of gas chambers are also expected. I think that was meant to be an example of Russian humor. Uh, Simonian uh, tweeted, the TV propagandist of Vladimir Solovyov uh, called European leaders Nazi scumbags and argued that the delivery of leopard tanks to Ukraine makes all of Germany a legitimate military target for Russia. He claimed Germany has forgotten its historical guilt and must pay for it. Uh, the uh, uh, fortunately, the attention to uh, German tanks ahead of the thirty uh, uh, Abrams tanks that they are talking about uh, offering from the United States. Well, why would that be? Uh, it would be partially because what is going on is the the. Uh, Leopard tanks, the German tanks, are easier to use and they will probably arrive more quickly to the front of battle, especially since Germany's participation here clears Poland to provide some of the Leopard tanks they have and to lend to their brothers and sisters in Ukraine. This is President Biden announcing the U.S. decision to send those 31 Abrams tanks to the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, also today, by the way, was uh, Volodymyr Zelensky celebrating his birthday. He's 45 years old. Uh, here is President Biden, uh, clip three. Today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve strategic objectives. The Abrams tanks are the most capable tanks in the world, and they're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. And we begin, we'll begin to train the Ukrainian troops on these issues of sustainment, logistics, and maintenance as soon as possible. Delivering these tanks to the field is going to take time. Time uh, that we'll see, uh, we'll use to make sure the Ukrainians are fully prepared to integrate the Abram tanks into their defenses. We're also closely coordinated this announcement with our allies. The American contribution will be joined by an additional announcement, including that will be uh, will be ready to available and more easily integrated for use in the battlefield in the coming weeks and months from other countries. Okay, and uh, then he spoke a little bit further about what other countries, obviously most prominently Germany, are doing in terms of military assistance. This is clip five. Sweden is donating infantry fighting vehicles. Italy is giving artillery. Denmark and Estonia are sending howitzers. Latvia is providing more Stinger missiles. Lithuania is providing the anti-aircraft guns. And Finland recently announced its largest package of security assistance to date. You may remember I was asked a while ago what I think was going to happen. And I said, I let Putin know. He thought that he's going to ha end up with the Findalization of Europe. Well, he's got the NATOization of Finland. He's gotten something that he never intended. Okay, uh, that's uh, the, when people talked about Finlandization, that usually meant that uh, what would happen would be what had happened to the fin country of Finland before, which it had been virtually taken over in terms of its foreign policy being dominated by Russia. That was Finlandization. 
Now he's talking about the NATOization of Finland, that Finland itself is um, applied to join NATO, and if the Turks will continue to remove their objections, they will go forward with that. There is uh, more controversy, and again, it can't be bad for Governor DeSantis. This is something else about what students do in schools, and it's very smart of DeSantis to concentrate on this issue of education because, frankly, it's one of those things that parents in the United States of America who represent a huge chunk of the electorate are very concerned about what's happening with their kids in schools. And one of the least useful implements in schools uh, that kids use is um, uh, cell phones. Should there be the right for teachers to ban cell phones from the classroom or is that a, a brutal uh, somehow violation of freedom of speech or freedom of communication uh, we'll talk about this issue particularly with a uh, an msnbc columnist who's attacked uh governor DeSantis on this coming up on the medved show the michael medved show <laughs> Michael Vanved show uh, speaking of the latest controversies swirling around the dynamic and uh, always outspoken governor of Florida uh, Ron DeSantis speaking on an issue that I think is a an issue to many teachers where the overwhelming majority of teachers in this country and if, if you're a teacher and you disagree with what Governor DeSantis has to say about cell phones in the classroom, uh, then, uh, then you can give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. Uh, Governor DeSantis raised the question about what can be done to prevent the enormously distracting and counterproductive presence of uh, cell phones as a uh, distraction and a preoccupation when kids are in class. Uh, this is the governor of Florida, clip four. I think to myself, why are these kids on their phones during class all the time? I mean, I think a school district would be totally within their rights to say, you know what, leave your phone in some cubby or something, go sit in class, learn, and then if you get it at recess and you want to text people, fine, but they should not be always on their phones uh, being distracted from the lessons. And so I think that our school boards will be able to lean in on some stuff, too, to buttress what we're doing, and I look forward to being able to do that. Okay, uh, this has been wildly criticized by the MSNBC columnist and New York University professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who accused uh, Governor DeSantis in a tweet of being authoritarian and so dangerous in every way uh, for suggesting that students put away cell phones while in class. They already do in many schools. Many teachers have students drop off their phones in some kind of basket or a container as president, as uh, Governor DeSantis. I don't want to call him President DeSantis yet. Um, 
or maybe never, who knows? Uh, but uh, many one students uh, uh, say that students have to have access to their phones due to school shooters. Really? That uh, you, you're insisting that the kids should be able to use their phones in the classroom because uh, a school shooter may come. Now, school shootings, thank God, are tragic. They are horrible, but they are a very small percentage of even the mass shootings that we have all been talking about. And uh, the idea that um, there needs to be a cell phone in the hands of students at that point uh, I mean, obviously, it does not make a great deal of sense. The uh, idea that it's authoritarian to deny cell phones to students. Well, there's also this. We talked about the other controversy regarding uh, Governor DeSantis and, and not saying that he was opposed to the teaching of black history. He has never said that as we made clear in the conversation we had with Rich Lowry. The entire point was not whether it's appropriate for kids even to have an AP option, an advanced placement option to take a black history course because Governor DeSantis has not announced opposition to that idea. What the opposition is to is to a course that is nakedly political, that takes, for instance, a big chunk of uh, the uh, semester that you're learning, of the two semesters that you're learning. There are four divisions, and one of the divisions involves contemporary issues like uh, reparations. And uh, the idea that you should take a position arguing for reparations as part of an advanced placement course well, that's too much for uh, any opposition to that idea to the civil rights attorney, Ben Crump. You may remember he has taken uh, and represented the families of a number of uh, black families that have uh, seen their family members or beloved ones, the uh, victims of uh, unjustified police violence. He is noted for it. But he's giving uh, uh, Governor DeSantis a specific warning about legal action regarding the African-American studies uh, dispute. This is clip 12. We're here to give notice yes. to Governor DeSantis yes. that if he does not negotiate with the college board to allow AP African American studies to be taught in the classrooms across the state of Florida that these three young people will be the lead plaintiffs in a historic lawsuit. And uh, that uh conversation about historic plaintiffs uh it it seems to me this is a, a threatened lawsuit about a class that doesn't even exist and he's talking about governor DeSantis negotiating he's already uh, indicated an eagerness to negotiate to shape and and by the way in the college board as uh rich lowry made clear 
has also indicated a willingness to negotiate because there should be a way that uh, African-American history is an important component of the history of the country, and yet it is fundamentally different, as I've said on this program before, African-American history is different because the great bulk of uh, black people who are here in the United States did not come to the United States by choice. Everybody else did. Everybody else chose to come here. And that is a distinction and a distinction in the historical experience of black people that it seems to me is worth acknowledging and recognizing. Uh, there is more about the uh, un ongoing battle concerning the debt limit. And uh, there's actually a very good column that it seems to me in the Wall Street Journal by uh, a noted political moderate, uh, William Galston, about how both sides need to reconsider intransigent positions on this question of a uh, debt ceiling breach and uh, talking a little bit about just how disastrous it really would be. Uh, we will get to that, uh, plus both Kevin McCarthy and uh, Chuck Schumer, the leaders of the House and the Senate, respectively, uh, talk about what the future is going to hold for that on-rushing uh, debt ceiling confrontation, which could have a very real and very scary, frankly, impact on the state of the U.S. economy, which uh, could impact virtually anyone trying to do business or support a family or to simply economically survive in this country. We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show uh, more on the debt ceiling crisis uh, there's a piece by William Galston who uh, I, I think writes as clearly as anyone has about why the date uh, the debt ceiling crisis really is a crisis and worthy of a great deal of serious attention he writes, the U.S. is speeding toward an unavoidable and potentially disastrous default on its public debt. Cool heads in both parties must make sure it doesn't happen. Breaching the debt limit could cause serious economic damage. The American financial system is the linchpin of the global economy, and the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. The fear that holders of American debt might not receive timely repayment as debt matures could create an epic panic. Uh, that means that, by the way, it's, it's no longer true that the uh, American debt is owed uh, almost entirely to American citizens. There are a lot of people all around the world, yes, including China and elsewhere, 
who have invested in American debt, who have taken out bonds that uh, and where if all of a sudden you're unable to pay the returns on those bonds that you're supposed to with all the interest that we're paying on our national debt, it's a, a very real problem. When Congress and President Obama, writes Galston, got close to the brink of a default a decade ago, that was in 2011 actually, uh, credit rating firms downgraded U.S. debt. There's no reason to believe that this won't happen again unless a deal is reached well before default is imminent, and it's imminent in June. Uh, a lower rating would mean higher interest rates, which would depress growth and add fiscal pressure that the tax payers would bear. In other words, we already have a situation uh, where paying at today's interest rates, we uh, we basically are spending close to 3%, 4% of the annual budget of the federal government to pay this interest. And it would go higher than that because you wouldn't be able to get the same kind of advantageous interest rates that the government gets today because uh, basically the United States has never defaulted. Uh, it's never failed to pay off its obligations until now. The apparent willingness of the new House Republican majority to do this, to put the credit of the United States in, in jeopardy, uh, is a sign of how wide the party's breach with big business has become. A recent survey from the Pew Research Center found that only 26% of Republicans think that large corporations have a positive effect on the country. The comparable figure for small businesses was 79%. And the idea that there's a profound difference between small businesses and big businesses, small businesses want to become big businesses. Most big businesses were at one time small businesses. Uh, this is in my book, The Five Big Lies About American Business. One of the big lies about American business is that all big business is bad and all small business is good. There are some crooked, I mean, just think of uh, George Santos. There are some crooked small businesses, relatively small businesses, and some incredibly indispensable uh, big businesses that we stake our lives on every day. But while business leaders reject brinksmanship on the debt ceiling, they also generally believe that Washington is on a dangerous fiscal course, and they have a point. During the 1990s, the burden of government debt on the American economy, measured as the ratio of debt to gross domestic product, actually fell. Since then, it has more than doubled, and worse lies ahead. Again, you can go back to the 1990s, and you can see when the American government was running a surplus. And yes, it was a paper surplus, and it didn't include the Social Security element, but it was still vastly better than what we have now, where it's coming up to $2 trillion a year in deficit. The, um, since then, it has more than doubled, and worse lies ahead. According to recent estimates from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, the annual budget deficit will rise to $2.4 trillion, by 2032, that's $2.4 trillion every year. Uh, the U.S. is on course to add more than $17 trillion to the national debt over the next decade, 
causing the debt-to-GDP ratio to rise from under 98% to a record 116%, while interest payments on the debt double from 1.7% to 3.4% of GDP, of the gross domestic product. And then Galston writes personally. He says, when I was learning emergency medical tactics and marine boot camp, half century ago, I was taught that I should stop the bleeding before doing anything else. This advice applies to Congress and the administration as well. Stopping the fiscal bleeding by stabilizing the burden of debt on the economy over the next decade would be reasonable initial goal. But the U.S. can't reach it unless the leaders come together across party lines to begin a long-deferred conversation. None of this can happen unless both parties back away from their untenable positions, he writes. Republicans must repudiate their use of the debt ceiling as a negotiating tactic, and congressional Democrats and the Biden administration must abandon their refusal to negotiate, which is outrageous and destructive, by the way. The American people would welcome these steps as a rare sign of common sense from their leaders. And common sense should not be so rare. Uh, this is uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy at least uh, advocating one aspect of that common sense, which is the need to negotiate. Clip 16. We have to negotiate over the debt. Our whole government is designed to have compromise. Republicans control the House. Democrats have a small majority in the Senate, and he's the president. He is playing with the financial markets of America by saying he wouldn't negotiate. We've hit the limit, so now we have to June or July. Let's start communicating now and find where we can eliminate the waste, find the common places we get together, and have a responsible debt ceiling that's lifted but puts us on a path to make us financially stronger. And, and you're right, Larry, the latest poll by Rasmussen, only 24% of America agrees with the president's position that he's not going to negotiate at all. Does he not believe that there's not one dollar that you can find to eliminate waste in government? I mean, they just passed a $1.7 trillion bill that two, two senators wrote who are no longer here at the end of the year. The Democrats have never passed a budget. And what did they do in the last four years? They increased discretionary spending by 30 percent, $400 billion. You know, when we were in the majority for those eight years, you know how much discretionary spending went up? Not one dollar. Okay, there's uh, other spending, of course, that did go up because a great deal of what the government spends is not discretionary. It's entitlements, as people talk about. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, speaking on the pending debt limit fight, gives a little bit of credit to his colleague Mitch McConnell. Listen. As the debate over raising the debt ceiling continues, Leader McConnell said something yesterday that I think is right on the mark. He said that when it comes to moving a debt ceiling proposal through Congress, the House should go first. He is correct. And not only should the House go first, but they must quickly show the American people what their plan actually is for avoiding a first-ever default on the national debt. So far, we haven't heard anything beyond vague and troubling talking points about the need to cut federal spending. That's not going to fly when you're in the majority as the as Speaker McCarthy, of course, is. 
Okay, there is yet another controversy. This just breaking news from uh, down in Oregon, in Portland, in Multnomah County. This is actually an incident, shocking incident, at Beaverton that has resulted in a $1 million... Okay, we're going to journey together to a strange world. And for many of us, uh, it's not a world that is so far away. It's a world when you cross the, uh, <laughs> the Columbia River, uh, you, uh, you get there. It's uh, the state of Oregon. And, or maybe if you're coming up from California, you drive past Mount Shasta and keep going. And Okay, Oregon is peculiar. And so is Washington, and it's one of the reasons I do love the Northwest. But Oregon is particularly peculiar over getting gas. And it's not just the price of gas. It is a ban on self-service gas. Can you imagine? It's been in place since 1951. Yes, uh, the state has relaxed some restrictions for rural towns a few years ago. Uh, there's actually a billboard which uh, still is famous. It, it's a classic billboard in Portland. It says, keep Portland weird. And uh, they're doing a good job. But this is a case which is actually incredibly con complicated where a uh, plaintiff in a discrimination case has just won a million dollars that's right I mean here we need the uh, dr. evil voice the uh, um, uh, one billion not a billion billion dollars well not quite but a million dollars is pretty good anyway a Multnomah County jury uh, this week found that Rose uh, Wakefield, who is a retinal imager at the Veterans Administration, had suffered racial discrimination by PacWest Energy and Jackson Food Stores, and they awarded her damages of $1 million. That verdict concluded punitive damages, in other words, damages that were meant to punish the uh, PacWest Energy and Jackson Food Stores to uh, punished them of $550,000. So what happened? Wakefield's claim included evidence that the gas station attendant, and remember, they have no self-service, so you need a gas station attendant. It's like the old days in many places. You, you pull up, you don't get your own gas, you ask someone to put the gas in your car. The gas station attendant at the Jackson's gas station in Town Center Mall in Beaverton, at suburban Portland, ignored her when she pulled her car in, and when she sought to summon him for assistance, he said, I'll get to you when I feel like it. Aha. Uh -huh. By the way, did I mention that uh, Rose Wakefield was black? Well, she is. Uh, Wakefield then got an employee from inside the store to pump the gas for her. The uh, store employee testified that, uh, that when she and Wakefield approached Wakefield's car, 
the attendant, the one who said, I'll get to you when I feel like it, uh, whose name is Nigel Powers, approached. And Wakefield forcefully told him not to come near her, but to stay away. The store employee, whose name is Brianna Horton, testified that she immediately realized that something untoward had already taken place between the two of them, and she offered Wakefield a card with the corporate complaint number. Wakefield, who is 63, who is the retinal imager, a medical technician, uh, testified that just as she was getting in her car and leaving, she asked the attendant, Nigel Powers, why did you refuse to help me? And Powers then replied, I don't serve black people, and laughed in her face. Uh, can you imagine, in 2023, the incident was uh, March 12, 2020, a colleague of Wakefield at the VA hospital testified that whenever the incident is mentioned, Wakefield's emotional reaction is so strong that it reminds him of his clients who suffer from PTSD. Uh, Wakefield was represented by uh, Greg and Jason Kafuri of the Portland firm Kafuri and McDougall. Uh, Greg Kafuri argued to the jury that the defendant's complaint system was meant to conceal evidence of wrongdoing rather than to investigate it. Within minutes of leaving the station, our client called the corporate complaint number. I would imagine if, you, if somebody has just said something like that to you, wouldn't you call a corporate complaint number? Is that reasonable? And she spoke for 19 minutes describing what had happened to her. Her call was not recorded, and the call taker instead wrote a single brief paragraph summarizing what Wakefield said while removing the most damning accusation. The most damning accusation was that the attendant said, I don't serve black people. Uh, thus, w then Wakefield left a lengthy voicemail with the regional manager who made no notes of the content of the call at all and erased her entire message. The attendant was never questioned by the company about the racist comments. And he was disciplined only for failing to serve customers in the order of their arrival. The attorney for Wakefield said that while the defense argued to the jury that Wakefield was lying, the defendants knew the plaintiff was telling the truth, pointing out that uh, Powers, the attendant, was fired only a month after the incident. Uh, Kafuri and the corporate records uh, said the corporate records showed that the defendants had papered his file by writing him up four times in the next 30 days for talking on his cell phone. The Powers file contained no similar accusations in the previous year and a half of his employment. Uh, Kafuri told the jury that an award of $1 million would force the corporate defendants to explain why complaint calls were not recorded and why Wakefield's voicemail was erased, explaining that a cop who erased evidence would go to jail for it. Kafuri told the jury that a large verdict would send a message to corporations across the country that corporate investigations needed to be honest and transparent and that covering up for racist abuse on the part of employees would not be tolerated by the larger community.
message sent. Uh, it does appear that uh, concerning uh, this particular incident, that uh, maybe some people who feel that it's going to be okay to uh, even jokingly say, I don't serve black people, uh, to think that that is okay is to think that America is the same as it may have been in 1951, which is when they started this practice in Portland of not allowing you to pump your own gas, where at least this kind of uh, confrontation could be avoided on that. There is a stunning political story, and I, I'm, I'm dying to get more detail about it, but apparently the uh, report is from NBC News that uh, Kirsten Cinema, the independent senator from Arizona, remember she officially left the Democratic Party, she now identifies herself as an independent. She has not said whether she's running for re-election or not. Or, by the way, whether she would run as an independent. Uh, but she apparently is being courted by Republicans, just as her challenger in the Democratic Party, Congressman Ruben Gallego, the Marine veteran who is running for the Democrats, raised a million dollars in the first 24 hours of his campaign. Minority Whip John Thune, senator from South Dakota, said that the GOP would welcome Senator Cinema to their conference and that he's invited her to switch to Republican many times. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer punted Thursday when asked if he would support Cinema if she does run for re-election. Uh, Schumer said Senator Cinema is an excellent Congress member and Senate member, and she has done a lot of good things here. But it's much too early to make a decision. Uh, Gallego's uh, campaign could spur a free-for-all for the safe Democratic House seat that he will leave behind. But the idea of Kirsten Sinema uh, leaping to the Republican side, uh, would she be a viable candidate at all? She has very low approval rating uh, in the state of Arizona. If she ran as a Republican, there are many Republicans, core Republicans, who wouldn't vote for her uh, because of her liberal background. But uh, what does this mean for the future of the Senate? Well, we'll find out and much more about the upcoming elections in this greatest nation on God's green earth.